1: I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined momentarily by Gladden Pappen. Gladden is the incoming president of the Hungarian Institute of Foreign Affairs based in Budapest, Hungary. He is also the co-founder and deputy editor of American Affairs Journal, one of my absolutely favorite publications of political thought. It comes out in quarterly fashion. But let's talk about Hungary. I actually just got back from Hungary. I was speaking there at CPAC Hungary. This is the second straight year of that CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, which has been around for decades. It's the second straight year they've had a conference over in Budapest. It's actually also my second straight year being in Hungary. If you are a longtime listener of the Josh Hammer show, you will recall the last year I mentioned that I was over there to speak on a panel at a different organization based in budapest so i've been actually over to hungary two years in a row i have seen our 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 incoming guest, glenn and papan over there two years in a row and then i've actually had the distinct pleasure of meeting the prime minister of that country victor orban at his residence and office carmelite uh, the the monastery there beautiful uh, stunning building overlooking the danube river I've had the pleasure of doing that two years in a row as well. So, you know, what is going on with Hungary? I mean, you, you've you seen some folks over the past few years talk about how many on the American right and really the global right in general have been paying disp- disproportionate attention to what is going on in Hungary. You've had some high-profile U.S. conservatives who have been spending a lot of time there, perhaps even resettling there. Gladden is spending an awful lot of time there these days. Roger, the well-known conservative writer, is hanging his hat in Budapest these days as well. So, what is it? What is it about what is going on in Hungary? What is it about what Prime Minister Orban is doing over there that is attracting so much outsized attention? And we're going to really kind of unpack this with Gladden who has his thumb on the pulse And he is quite literally living there on the ground day to day at this point. But the basic point is that the broader kind of conservative rethinking of what it even means to be conservative, what it means to have a right of center politics, what it means to have a right of center public policy, rule of law what sort of ends we should be pursuing, even kind of how flexible our our relationship between means and ends should be. There's been this broader rethink, especially in the post-Trump era as kind of the era of globalization, the era of globalism has kind of teetered and come crashing really to an end, especially in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic. And there have been many of us who are looking for an alternative form of a right of center governance that is oriented, not necessarily to the singular securing of negative liberty or negative rights, the shrinking of government at any and all costs, you know, the Grover Norquistian version of government so small that it will drown in a bathtub, kind of that Tea Party era slogan that Mr. Norquist put out on 60 Minutes over a decade ago at this point. No, some of us are looking for a different form of conservative governance that is fundamentally about securing national identity, national traditions, customs, religion, borders, family, peace, prosperity, all of the above. The old school intangible goods, put another way, of what constitutes the common good and the human flourishing of the polity, of what Aristotle called the polis, of the political community. And It is really interesting to see that some countries there in Central and Eastern Europe, especially Hungary, in kind of the post-Cold War era, you got to remember kind of the history of that part of the world. These countries were subjugated by the Nazis, then they were subjugated by the Soviets, so they've emerged in the post-Cold War era. They are strong on on protecting their national identity because they've oftentimes been subjugated by various totalitarian empires over the past millennium or so. So these countries, especially Hungary, they are strong on the national identity. They are strong on the nuclear family. They are strong on public religiosity. For those of you who follow these conversations, you'll recognize these are a lot of similar themes to what so-called national conservatives, of which I would would consider myself one, of what more nationalist, populist-oriented conservatives in general, post-liberals, The whole shebang, these are a lot of these similar themes to what we have been talking about for many, many years now. And Hungary under Prime Minister Orban is one country that has actually put a lot of these ideas into practice so i literally just got back from budapest where i was speaking at cpac hungry I, I was on a panel about free speech i had a wonderful time but let's not waste any other time there so i'm back in the u.s now but gladden pappen is still over in budapest we're going to bring him on just spent a lot of time there with gladden it's kind of funny that we didn't record this conversation over there but stay with us we're going to take it to a quick commercial break we are going to bring on gladden pappen soon we're going to talk about all things hungry stay with us Welcome back. As promised, speaking of back, I am obviously back from Hungary, where I spent a lot of time with someone who's become a good friend of mine over the past few years. That, of course, is Gladden Papin. He is all things Mr. Hungary these days. Gladden Papin is the incoming president of the Hungarian Institute of Foreign Affairs based in Budapest. He's also the co-founder and deputy editor of American Affairs, the quarterly journal for whom we previously had Julius Krein, his co-founder and the editor of that publication is a previous guest on this show. Gladden has also been a professor for a number of years now at the University of Dallas, where I was just there about a month and a half ago or so to give a couple lectures. So he's really just a man about town. But these days he is based in Budapest. He is all things hungry. He's the perfect guy to join us this week. Gladden, it was great to see you over there in Budapest. Thanks so much for joining the program this
3: week. Thanks so much for coming. It was great to see you here as well. Actually, it feels like we should be doing the podcast in Budapest since you were just here. Um, So great to see you. I know you've been a great friend of Hungary over the last few years, and I I think we've bumped into one another more in Budapest the last couple of years (laughs) than in the US. Yeah, it's actually really funny. I mean, we've bumped into each
1: other twice in Budapest, once in Brussels, once in Warsaw. So I feel like I see you over in Europe these days more often than than I see you on this side of the Atlantic. But Glennon, I mean, all of this is funny because as you like to kind of gently poke fun at me for, I'm kind of the guy who kind of sort of got you into this mess in the first place, which is going back to an op-ed that you wrote for Newsweek on the precipice of the 2020 election back in October 2020 with a piece about how Joe Biden had put Poland and Hungary in his crosshairs. So before kind of getting into your current role and the conference that we were both speaking at last week and all that, why don't you kind of just talk us through... The steps that led you, who you know, you obviously are a Harvard-trained kind of Harvey Mansfield's-studied American academic. What are kind of the the steps that led you to take such an intense interest in what's happening currently in Hungary?
3: Well, you're right that you do bear a a good bit of the blame for my winding up uh, on this side of the pond. Uh, But there, as you as you mentioned, there is a a deeper backstory. Um, Yeah, I've been a political philosopher and and scholar of the, the history of political thought worked with harvey mansfield and i was really interested from the beginning uh in the nature of modern political thought and nature of modern liberalism and the origins of modern sovereignty and and where those phenomena would would go and and play out in actual politics as well and that's something that mansfield and and his school have always encouraged you know not just to be uh An academic in the clouds or something like that, but also to pay a lot of attention to to current politics. So uh, my views were always kind of skeptical of the direction of modern globalization. I was on the other side of the, uh, you know, I was on more of the non interventionist side of the intra Republican debates after 9-11. So I was kind of an outsider within Republican politics, I would say, from the beginning, Um, and that changed at least my evaluation of the situation changed as it did for so many people uh, in 2016. We launched American Affairs. I was born out of the Journal of American Greatness. And suddenly it seemed like, hey, um, we've been skeptical of the trajectory of modern liberalism and globalization for a long time. Suddenly now there are a couple of relevant political phenomena that are confirming that. In other words, it, it moves from being purely an academic debate to something that required uh, public intervention. And Julius Krein came out of the same academic world, at least at at Harvard, but then had gone through finance. And both of us felt, well, now is the time to have a better public discussion about the trajectory of of liberalism, trajectory of globalization, the return of the nation, so on and so forth. You had Brexit in summer 2016, then you had Trump it really felt like things were changing. And frankly, the the connection, new connection between American and European conservatives partly grows out of that. Before 2016, there was really very little transatlantic exchange among conservatives. American conservatives have their own tradition. Maybe there were some political theory types who were interested in Roger Scruton in England and Pierre Manant in France and... There was a little curiosity uh, after 2015 about the the, the Polish government, but there's really very little exchange until the last few years. But I think these phenomena are all tied together. You know, in the in the late 1990s, it was the global liberal movement that 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 claimed to speak for the you know huge majority of the world's population. You know, everyone's going to be lifted out of poverty. Borders are going to disappear. Everything is going to enter this. Um, end of history, utopia, so on and so forth. And conservatives were kind of like down and out, just oriented around their nations, not talking across borders. You know, what does Polish conservatism have to do with American conservative conservatism? And like, come on, what does Hungarian conservatism have to do with American conservatism? Those were all the the baseline assumptions. But after 2016, that started to change. You had this, these the the veil was Uh, Punctured, as it were, uh, with Trump and Brexit. By that time, you had six years of conservative government in Hungary. You had the conservative government coming in Poland. And since then, I think this has been a a steady trajectory upward. So I was fortunate to to come over here for the first time to Budapest in 2020, thanks in part uh, to the sequence of events. Uh, that resulted from Newsweek publishing my commentary <laughs> on the, the now the now president's remarks during the second debate. But, but, yeah, I mean, it's much larger phenomenon now, as you said, everyone ends up crossing paths over here. And I think that's connected with this these larger changes in in global politics and geopolitics that are that are starting to um, take shape.
1: I mean, that's really good kind of laying of the foundation. And, it, you know, it is just so interesting from a U.S. Right of center, rightist, conservative, whatever we are called these days, perspective. Because, I mean, at least when I was growing up, I mean, kind of thinking about European politics, I mean, the countries that always kind of got the disproportionate share of the attention in the mainstream media, and I guess those are still the same countries that got the disproportionate share of the attention in the mainstream media today are kind of the great Western European powers, Britain, and France, Germany, obviously, being the economic heavyweight of all heavyweights in the modern European Union. But it has been so fascinating, at least in kind of the post-Trump era, to see so many right-of-center folks in the US, Europe, and, you know, you know to, I guess to a lesser extent, really kind of the whole world over, paying attention to what's happening in Central and Eastern Europe, in particular, kind of the, the Visegrad group, the so-called V4 countries of, of Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic, and, you know, I mentioned that I was in Warsaw with you a couple of years ago, had the, uh, had the opportunity to interview the, the prime minister there, Morawiecki. But it really is Hungary in particular, which is a relatively small country. I, I mean, I think around, what, 10 to 11 million people or so It really is Hungary that has emerged as kind of the epicenter of what many kind of more nationalist, populist, conservatives, post-liberals are really kind of eyeing. You know, you've become a, a tremendous ambassador for this particular cause. And, you know, I know you've spoken about this a million times, but, you know, why don't you try to just distill kind of the basic outlines as to what it is about the Hungarian model, in particular, under Prime Minister Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party that you think are, are so appealing to kind of post-Trump conservatives, perhaps on both sides of the Atlantic?
3: It's a great question, and a lot of people are asking it because everyone can sense now that... the uh, knowledge of the Hungarian scene is is in the air. And that's, again, not something that could have been said even two or three years ago. People do kind of look askance initially and say, well, hey, this is, a as you said, small country, 10 million people. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I know we've you and I have talked about this a lot of times before. Uh, Hungary and, and Israel have a very close relationship. And obviously, they're very different uh, kinds of countries. And the U.S. has a different strategic relationship with each. Nevertheless, they have some some similarities, um, being small countries with uh, unique cultures, uh, somewhat isolated, and somehow also exemplary. And obviously, they're exemplary in different ways. But uh, somehow, that is actually a, a part of the relationship between Hungary and Israel, too. So I think what, well, let's start with what bothers liberals, particularly Uh, European ones about Hungary itself, it's that it is a European country that is sticking to its uh, traditions and actually restoring them and and trying to uh, chart its own path as um, you know, it's not an it's not outside of Europe, it is a European country, it exemplifies the fact that, um, you know, traditional cultural arrangements, the promotion of the family, the desire for peace, etc. can still be popular. So it's a kind of inconvenient counterexample or something like that. Now you're talking also about a uh, post-liberal movement and kind of some, some of these uh, new tendencies within conservative thinking in the United States. And I'll I'll try to trace those for for one minute and and connect them to it as well. Well I think that there was a efflorescence of new intellectual movements on the right after 2016. And conservatives for a long time in the US had been by default, um, you know, friendly to primarily friendly to private corporations, private enterprise, hostile to the idea of uh, having a clear vision for national government. The purpose of government is just to get out of the way. Um, And I think a lot of us, from a variety of different standpoints, felt that that was no longer sufficient for the moment. Well, you know, in Hungary, you have a country that really saw the the short end of the stick in the 20th century, uh, both after World War I and then uh, during the domination by the communists. And if you were to pick uh, a part of the world where, superficially at least, there's no reason for it to, to come back, there's no reason for it to be on the map again, you know, it was crushed a couple of times, the um, birth rate in Hungary fell every single year from the mid 1970s until 2010, you know, like the, uh, there's brain drain, um, like the, uh, if you were to evaluate things, the, the signs were pointed in a wrong direction, and it's at a vulnerable geopolitical mm-hmm. location as well. So, you know, when conservatives in the US are talking about um, you know, taking the black pills and uh, worrying that you know America has passed the point of no return. Like, well, there's a lot of arguments to be made that uh, it should have been much, much harder to turn around uh, a country like Hungary. Um, you know, it's small. It had it had suffered a lot. Thing every all the metrics were were pointed in the wrong direction. And you know, when you look at jumping back to the US in my mind for a minute but you know you you hear liberals often say often kind of suggest that um the causes of decline are so complicated do we really know how to clean up our cities do we really know how to you know end um end, viol- end violence in our cities uh, these are these are these are such um such hard things like is it is it really possible to um, turn around the metrics on family formation in modern society because you know the the causes are just so complicated. So they 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 almost kind of create a, an air of inevitability around failure and decline. Uh, and Hungary is well a a, a white pill of uh, practicality and reasonable policies that have begun to turn the ship in the other direction. So. In the last 10 years, you know, Hungary faced a migration crisis in 2015. You know, we t- we've we talked about building a wall in the U.S. in the 2016 campaign. Hungary built a wall, you know, and reduced its um, attempted border crossings to zero. Beginning from 2015 especially, there was a heavy investment into uh, tying all of the state benefit programs to family structure. In the last 10 years, the number of marriages per year has doubled. Uh, the number of divorces has declined by something like half. Similar number for the number of abortions per year. You know, the so the family formation statistics are going in the other direction. And as you know from being here, you can, you can feel in the air that it's a family-friendly city. Um, so it shows that, you know, it is a modern country. It's economically successful. It's not isolated. It's not you know, populist in a harsh sense. It's a well-connected country uh, to all the countries around it. And it's one that's trying to preserve the uniqueness of its culture and support uh, the people and their choice for uh, a tradition, uh, you know, more broadly what we would call traditional family life. So I think that's why it frustrates a lot of people that it, that it has gotten a lot of attention because superficially it, it shouldn't, but it's also why a lot of people want that inconvenient example to go away and i think the lesson you know the broad lesson that conservatives should take from it is not like oh american conservatives need to exactly copy policy xyz but actually the the solutions to a lot of problems uh, are available and do work when the conservative approach is implemented obviously we're starting to see that too in states like your own florida um, and other american states that you know by also being of a comparable size, uh, share something of the of the political vision. So I think that that to me is what it represents, at least from a um, from a conservative political standpoint. Right. So the broader context,
1: which you very helpfully kind of underlaid there, is this broader rethink that has been happening in the post Trump era. And you kind of tied it, I think, quite nicely to the founding of American affairs and all this kind of intellectual ferment that has happened over the past five, six years. You know, Perhaps that ferment is, is starting to turn a little stale, as your excellent recent essay for American Affairs, Requ- Requiem for the Realignment, pointed out. And we can kind of get to that a little later in the conversation if we want to. But the broader context is this rethink away from kind of a purely kind of you know, liberalized, kind of negative liberty-negative, natural rights-protecting form of right liberalism towards a form of conservatism that is more robustly oriented towards using power to pursue the common good of the actual country. And I think that it is exactly right to view Hungary as kind of being at the epicenter of that like very much real-time experiment in, in pursuing a form of right-of-center governance that is oriented that way. I, I also kind of find this parallel that you alluded to and that you and I have discussed between Israel and Hungary to be very interesting. I mean, it's, you know it does seem that both countries fundamentally have a lot of things in common, actually. I mean, they have religion, God, family, borders, national sovereignty. I mean, there's a lot of very similar themes here. And, you know, the God part is is, is self-evident in Israel. It's the world's only Jewish state. Um, in, in Hungary, public Christianity kind of suffuses the entire kind of body politic Uh, the the hungarian constitution famously um, infamously if you're a liberal but famously of course if if you're right of center uh, defines marriage as one man and one woman and there's any number of other examples of that there's obviously no such thing as gender ideology or or gender identity or any of this other kind of modern pablum that is that is indoctrinated into the um, school curricula or anything of that nature there when it comes to borders uh, you know, Israel very tightly controls its borders because it has no other choice. Hungary infamously controls its borders as well as Tucker Carlson saw. Back when he was there in the summer of 2021, much to the chagrin of Brussels and all that. So there are a lot of parallels here. And I, I want to kind of dive in on perhaps your area foremost specialty, which is the family aspect of that. But before we do so, let's take it to a very quick commercial break. We're here with Gladden Papin, who is all things hungry these days. He's a good friend of mine, good friend of the show. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We're going to get into family policy. Stay with us. <sighs> okay so we talked about kind of god nationalism borders but it's really kind of the babies the the family the nuclear family that i think is driving a lot of the interest in hungary and you know you are perhaps kind of the the western right of center world's foremost policy expert in this area. I really do not think that is particularly overstating it. Um, By the way, yet another area where Hungary and Israel seem to have a lot in common is Israel's fertility rate these days is about 2.9 to 3, which is shockingly high for for a Western country. Hungary's is not quite that high, but they have made dramatic improvements in that respect over the past decade or so due to the family-friendly policies that the Orban government has pursued. So, Glad you've written and spoken about this at tremendous length. I don't need you to kind of, you know, you know, give us a thirty five thousand word thesis here, which I know that you would be able to, to do. But why don't you kind of just briefly kind of highlight some of the key policies from a pro family perspective that Hungary has been pursuing and that you think should be good fodder for the United States or other major Western countries to pursue?
3: Well, I think – and the really the high-level view is exactly what you said, that if we look out into the world of modern countries, there are really only two types that have begun to defy the demographic decline that we see everywhere. And this was pointed out by our friend Philip Pilkington in an American Affairs article uh, last fall, and those are basically very religious societies, societies that have a religious commitment to, to childbearing where that's still operative. And those that are using major financial and economic tools to try to turn things in the right direction. So Israel, one, and Hungary, two, would be examples of that. We just have to admit that there's, for whatever reason, there's something in modern society that it's the prosperity, it's the financial stress, whatever it is, people are having fewer children than they want to have. So when I first started writing about Hungarian family policy, there were a lot of these like nitty gritty debates over, you know, has Hungary's policy actually increased the birth rate and the fertility rate? This was not ever how I had phrased it myself, but it's the kind of thing that statisticians like to talk about. The way I try to understand what Hungary is doing now, I call it something like a whole of family, whole of society, excuse me, whole of society um, family policy – so one so – it's a, a way of thinking about politics that makes the support of the family a critical element of every policy decision. So it's in the constitution, the definition of the family in order to uh, protect against and authorize the government to, to take measures uh, to protect that against the new, more Uh, challenging and culturally adverse definitions. It's a part of their tax policy. So, um, you know, uh, uh, in a family that has one child, the standard flat tax rate of 15% for their personal income tax is reduced by a third for one child, you know, reduced by two thirds for two children and a family that has three children is not paying personal income tax. Famously, also a, a mother who has a fourth child is never going to pay personal income tax for the rest of her life. So even, even if we're talking about sort of um, you know standard classical GOP tax cutting mindset, the Hungarian approach incorporates that as well. What they do differently, I'll just mention this really briefly because I don't want to get into, get into all the details. I really think it's more a matter of mindset. Uh, but they also take steps to make uh, the immediate period after childbirth more financially beneficial to mothers who have worked uh, beforehand than than it was afterward they receive their entire salary from before um, childbirth and it's not subject to their social security tax and the other element is a a very generous uh, plan to make it easier to get into a home so families with three dependent children can get a approximately thirty thousand dollar subsidy toward the construction or the purchase of a new flat um, there's an there's a housing oriented element the, again the thought there is when housing is becoming more expensive you're likelier to delay marriage and to delay childbirth if you can't see how to uh, get into an apartment or get into a house so that's quite that's quite significant it, it it's ultimately a different way of of thinking than most American conservatives of a certain uh, more classical orientation and and generation, if you will, are are um, uh, are accustomed to. But I think it's worth putting on the Hungarian hat for a moment, as it were, and seeing what uh, policies come out. I, the my go-to example at the moment, which again is definitely a stretch for the typical uh, more classical GOP. Voter is student loans. So there was the Biden administration's proposal to suspend student loan re- repayments for a certain period of time. That was quite controversial when it uh, came out in September. And the uh, you know the knee-jerk libertarian reaction is something like, "Well, you shouldn't have taken out student loans if you can't afford to repay them," et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the Hungarian mindset is 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 something like, um, you know, if if we want people to have families. Well, we have to; um, we ha- they have to not feel completely burdened by um, the debts that would get in the way of them forming families. So they have also constructed um, a, a student loan suspension program for mothers of children. So when you have a, your first child, your student loan repayment is suspended for three years. When you have a second child, half the remaining debt is canceled. And when you have a third child, the entire remaining amount of student loan debt is canceled. So, again, these are smaller amounts than in the United States, where obviously we have gigantic, expensive, problematic um, you know, private university system. The policies are not necessarily translatable. Um, but the goal is to create this, this, uh, this sense in the country that um, the norm is still th- the norm. And it, it looking back over on the United States over the last 30 years, It seems like what we've allowed is for very very small narrow narrow isolated perspectives to kind of take over the whole country take over the whole debate uh, and push everything in their direction hungary is still a free society people can do what people do what they want but the norm is still a father and a mother having a family and as far as i can tell that makes a huge difference yeah i mean it makes all the
1: difference in the world of course i mean there are Look, I mean, from my perspective, there are very few, if any, more pressing public policy challenges than to ensure that at the time of more American births, there is a mother and a father present at the time of that birth. I mean, you know, I could do the whole Daniel Patrick one hand shtick about from the 1960s, the crisis of the black family. And, you know, the point is today in the year 2023. Hold aside race. I mean, this is an issue for everyone—white, I mean, black, yellow, red Americans, whoever. I, I mean, like they, this is just a a major issue. And of course, fertility rates in general are a huge issue for the West in general. I think the U.S. fertility rate at this particular juncture was, is a shade below one point seven, if I'm not mistaken. Of course, in some highly developed countries, albeit non-Western ones, such as Japan, it's, it's quite a bit lower than that—a teetering around one point one to one point two. Truly terrifying data. Glad, you kind of hinted in, in your response there at one of the kind of uh, usual kind of gotcha sort of knee jerk responses that folks on on both the left and kind of the the right liberal elements of the right of center alike. Tend to kind of whip out of their arsenal when folks like you and I talk about Central and Eastern Europe, which is, oh, it's not translatable. I mean, like, who the heck cares what's going on there in these small, tiny, homogenous countries? America is a, a sprawling sea to shining sea country. So, I mean, what do you basically say to that? Um, what is kind of your response to that line of criticism that there's no reason for Americans, a country of three to 400 million people with you know lots of linguistic, ethnic, racial, blah, blah, blah differences, that there's no reason for us to care what's going on in a country like Hungary? What's your basic response to that?
3: The family is the norm according to nature. I mean, it doesn't really, it, it shouldn't vary by country. It shouldn't vary by time. This is not, it's not something that's exclusively um, it's not something that's exclusively Hungarian. It's just that there are that happen to be in Central Europe for cultural and historical reasons, some governments that are still pursuing this policy. So an example of something that's happening all over Europe is there are large family associations. Americans like to talk about the importance of creating associations. There are large family associations called three plus associations in countries all over Europe. Parents band together and go around to local businesses and ask. Uh, can we set up a discount program for you know, large families in this area? Sign up here. We'll give them a card. Well, when the Polish government came to power in uh, 2015, it said, look, this is really cool. This is really great that this has been going on. It's great to see that organic, bottom-up, um, American-style association forming. Let's add the additional power of good government behind it. So let's take this – uh, Family association, impulse, or small organization, and send out a letter to every company, every company in the country, and ask them what can they do? Would they like to be a part of this? So that's the. the it seems like that's the element that's missing a little bit from um, the American conservative discourse. Just it, it, it's not about completely upending um, every instinct of American policy or whatever. It's just about expanding your mind a little bit. Um, to see what else is possible, and to come up with an argument for good government. Abortion is not any longer the main, uh, main driver for Republicans going to the polls. Of people in the 2022 20, uh, election who said that they were primarily motivated by the abortion issue, nine out of ten of them were going to the polls to vote for the Democratic Party. So wow. if, if the Republicans – and that was, a, a, that was an exact – Flip from uh, before Dobbs. Before Dobbs, if you said that abortion was the reason you're going to the polls, right, nine right. out of ten people were voting for the Republican Party. Now, nine out of ten of those people—it's not the same people, obviously—but of people who are motivated by abortion are voting for the Democratic Party. So, what is the GOP going to do? <laughs> we need some kind of uh, need some kind of argument there, and it could be it could be kind of soft power stuff like. Um, making family weekends in Florida or family festivals or family-friendly zones or, you know, giving businesses family-friendly designations. Like there's a bunch of stuff that can be done, you know, short of implementing, um, you know, what would be perceived as a new entitlement program or something like that, which might just be really, really difficult to do at the national level. There's a lot that can be done. I know there are a lot of uh, people on the state level who are beginning to think in this way. And um, again, it's a mindset, not just a set of policies to be copied.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's fundamentally just a different paradigm through which to view public policy and frankly, the law and also just the rule of law, law formation and you know, arguably even constitutional or statutory interpretation. But that's kind of a whole different conversation. I want to take our remaining conversation in a slightly different direction. So, your actual title that I led with is your incoming president of the Hungarian Institute of Foreign Affairs. Uh, we haven't actually even touched on, on foreign affairs at all, but it's, it, it is worth pointing out and at least briefly discussing the fact that Hungary has also been quite different than most of its fellow European countries, even most of its fellow Visegrad group members in Central and Eastern Europe. It's certainly been a heck of a lot different than the policy pursued by Poland, for example, when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And, you know, I think a lot of folks uh, look at Prime Minister Orban. I mean, you know how this goes, Gladden. I mean, the MSNBC crowd, Tom Freeman, the New York Times, they'll be like, oh, he's an authoritarian, he's a Putin shill, he's just taking Putin's side, blah, blah, blah. It obviously is a heck of a lot more complicated than that. Hungary is obviously not taking Russia's side. Hungary, as a country that was subjected to Soviet control for a half century under the Iron Curtain, knows all too well the pitfalls of of Russian subjugation. But what is the Hungarian government's perspective on the war? And, and why is it, do you think, that they have arrived at a very different approach to the conflict in neighboring Ukraine than those other countries like Poland and similar countries have um, have arrived at
3: well Hungary borders Ukraine and so the conflict is very very close and constantly present in the mind 2.5 million refugees passed through Hungary and the last year according to the United Nations statistics it was very palpable here last spring Um, at the train station, just huge amounts of people in very desperate, very desperate situation. Hungary has provided a ton of humanitarian aid. And then this is the situation that I know on the ground. And then I look at Western headlines, and I have no idea where the fake news is coming from that uh, Orban is a Putin shill and so on and so forth. As you said, Hungary is very simply a pro-peace country. That means... They don't support invasions of other countries, and once they happen, they want them to stop. Um, so that's the that's the that's the basic Hungarian position. Hungary is very close to a, a dangerous dangerous conflict. Um, In fact, there are Hungarians living on uh, who who are Ukrainian citizens living on living on the other side of the border. It's a very delicate situation. And what I see as as an American and traveling back and forth pretty frequently between the United States uh, and Europe is that for whatever reason in this conflict for ordinary people in America, if you're not paying attention to the news every single day, it's very hard to follow what's going on and somehow it doesn't seem as present and palpable as say the Iraq war, obviously for the, for very simple reason that it's, that it's not America's uh, war to fight, but it is one that America has been involved in uh, very heavily for the last year, you know, from a, from a tangential um, perspective. So Hungary is much closer to the conflict. Um, You know, it, it, it wants to maintain the peace that it has in the region, and therefore, it opposes um, you know actions t- that tend toward escalating the conflict there. And it wants a settlement as soon as possible. So, I mean, that's kind of the the narrow explanation of what's going on with Hungary. It has a different geopolitical situation from other countries in the region, um, and that is maybe we can get into we can get into another time. But there's a larger question here about um, you know how the how the whole global order has begun to change a little bit in the last year, and it seems that a lot of the rest of the world, you know, outside of outside of Western Europe, um, is beginning to look a little bit more askance and uh, skeptically toward the way that um, American and and Western European foreign policy has been classically formulated. Um, so it's. Definitely a, a time where the it feels like the geopolitical order is somehow changing quickly. Friendships and alliances that we didn't think were possible a year and a half ago now seem to be occurring on an almost daily basis. You see it in the Middle East. You see it in conversations about uh, new currency arrangements. You see it in the you know increased closeness between Russia and China. Um, you, you know you see it in the kind of lack of success of the class classical post 1990 tools of American foreign policy like sanctions that don't seem to be having the effect that we uh, anticipated at the beginning of the war. So, um, you know, a a, a lot of the discourse around Hungary is just that this is a place where that is evident. You know, we're on the front lines and, you know, we can see what's working. We can see what's not working. Um, and from this somewhat vulnerable position, it's a part of the world where, you know, if there's a a major split between West and East, that is going to hurt all of the countries along the along the periphery there. So Hungary has a strong interest in in seeing this particular conflict come to an end as soon as possible. Um, but it's also, I think, interested in these in these larger shifts that we've started to see over the last year.
1: Yeah. And it really is interesting to see the Western media go up in arms about the fact that Hungary supports a resolution to the conflict. I mean, what could be so horrific about the prospect of peace, right? I, I mean, and that kind of just underscores the, the utter insanity and frankly, just rank hypocrisy that has all too often characterized left of center intellectual ranks over, over the past year, year and a half as those. On- yeah, on I
3: mean, let's like, let's even, let's even just, sorry to interrupt there, but let's even look back through at the last, you know, Month and a half of headlines about negotiated settlements in the Ukrainian conflict. I think maybe a month and a half ago, it would, it would be something like, uh, you know, the, the the U.S. denounces the the very possibility of uh, speaking in these terms, and then suddenly, um, you know, the possibility that China would have a greater role um, in settling the conflict or, you know, being a part of peace negotiations comes on the scene, everyone is everyone is shocked. And over the weekend, just this past weekend, there were headlines in, in the Wall Street Journal um, about interest from the United States in that possibility. So, you know, it 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 seems like the again, the the nature of the conflict and the 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 consequences for it seem to be changing rapidly.
1: Right. I mean, yet, yet another way that perhaps kind of the Hungarian approach might be vindicated. Interestingly, actually, just a very brief aside, this is actually another area, I think, that Hungary and Israel, which you kind of mentioned, this interesting kind of connection, that's another way that those two countries share a similar outlook. So it was actually way at the beginning of the conflict before Prime Minister Netanyahu returned to power when the Prime Minister at the time, Naftali Bennett, flew to Moscow, if I recall, where he, where he was lambasted by much of the Western press for kind of meeting with Putin, if I recall, but he was really just trying to kind of to work out a deal, to work out a peace agreement. And it's yet another way, I think, um, in which these two countries share a similar approach, which is fundamentally a somewhat kind of realpolitik, realistic approach to the conflict, not this absolutist kind of World War II-esque all-out good versus all-out evil paradigm that has characterized all too much of the utterly vapid Western characterizations and conversations on this particular topic. So, yeah. And
3: as, a, and as an American, that, that, that worries me. I mean, that's, that's worrisome. It seems like we're taking, we're following the same kind of tactics, but the strategic resu- as we did in the 1990s, but the strategic result is not that successful for the U.S. Um, you know, are, are, are we really, is the U.S. really expanding its sphere of influence in the world? I mean, in its own backyard, we now have in Brazil a hostile President, where a few years ago there was, um, you know, one who was more supportive of the American line. It seems like, you know, America has begun to push its, you know, a certain version of late liberal cultural values on the rest of the world, and maybe the the people who are doing that still think that that's going to be effective, and that you know they enjoy all the power and they can, um, you know, force that ideology on everyone and. Um you know when people step out of line, you know they can slap a few sanctions on their hands and um you know they'll they'll get back in line, but that doesn't seem to be how the last year has been working out um It seems like in more and more parts of the world that um that American influence is actually um receding the the sharper and more feverish it gets, if you will. I guess I'm speaking in a kind of elliptical manner, but it seems like somehow the sphere of American influence, which uh, any of us would want in principle to, to grow is shrinking. And it's also becoming, um, you know, culturally very different from classical American values. So we're, you know, America's pushing on a lot of countries, definitely on Hungary, hostile cultural norms that are really different from its traditional values. And that's causing a lot of tension. So just even from a practical standpoint, um, it seems that the United States is using the old tactics, something like that, um, but not really achieving the strategic results that it expected.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine for the life of me. What some more traditionally inclined europeans might have a problem with when when the u.s government flies the rainbow flag in places like um the vatican or god forbid or you know or perhaps other state capitals and you know the current u.s ambassador to hungary a chap by the name of pressman is basically there as one gigantic middle finger from the Biden administration to the government of Hungary. I I do not think that that is overstating it. He is an extraordinarily poor fit, to put it mildly, as someone who might be able to kind of soothe out U.S.-Hungarian relations. And, you know, to your point, there, I think, is is a lot that the United States these days, to put it mildly, is is overreaching with when it comes to kind of cultural exporting of our current not-so-great culture. So Gladden, we're unfortunately running a little low on time here, so we'll have to bring you back another time to kind of talk all things realignment and the future of the so-called new right, if there even is a future of the so-called new right these days. But for present purposes, this is a really great conversation about what's going on in Hungary, where you are currently situated and where you are on the beat. So where can the listeners to this program find you if they want to hear or read more from you?
3: Well, I'm on Twitter at G.J. Pappin, G-J-P-A-P-P-I-N. And I post most of my uh, goings on there. And uh, you can also find American Affairs at AmericanAffairsJournal.org and uh, also contribute a lot to the post-liberal order substack, uh, which you can find at substack as well. So we also have a, a website for the Hungarian Institute uh, of foreign affairs. And, and you can find all that through my Twitter account. So uh, feel free to reach out and uh, look forward to hearing from your listeners.
1: i and Pappin it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us this week.
3: Thank you.
2: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole?
1: So, thanks again to my good friend Gladden Pappen for stopping by. Gladden really has become, in recent years, all things hungry, but he really is someone who has his thumb very much on the pulse as to where the global right is headed. And it is headed, of course, in kind of a more kind of anti-liberal, anti-globalist direction with this emphasis on God, tradition, nation, family, the more traditional things that conservatives of a different era would have recognized before the onset of post-Cold War globalization and global liberalism and the so-called Washington Consensus of bipartisan free trade for all outsourcing manufacturing lines, things of that nature. So please do go ahead and check out all of Gladden's work, which he flagged there can be found via his Twitter and of course via American Affairs Journal, the indispensable quarterly journal of political thought for which he serves as co-founder and to this day, the deputy editor. Really hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please do go ahead once again and subscribe. To the Josh Hammer Show. If you are not already doing so on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, we really need you to go ahead and subscribe. Give us that five-star review right in your comment section. What do you want to see out of future conversations? We are always looking for your feedback. We always want to incorporate your feedback the best we can. We're trying to bring you kind of incisive, slightly kind of outside the mainstream thinkers, thinkers who are interested in pushing the Overton window, who are fundamentally interested in rethinking stale orthodoxies, changing paradigms, changing the way that we think about politics, public policy, law, culture, all the things that matter to folks like you and I. Glad Papin is definitely, is definitely one of those thinkers. And once again, we were thrilled to have him on for the program this week. I would imagine next week for a conversation, we'll probably return to more America-centric themes, bringing a little closer back to home. But for now, we really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Glad and Pappen. I'm Josh Hammer. We'll see you next time.